Well, good morning. I'd invite you to stand as we open God's Word together. Um, I've had the privilege this summer of leading or being part of a couple of Bible studies from the book of Ruth. And through that, God has just been really bringing more and more out of that short book, just four short chapters, um, to me, and um, has, has put some of that on, on my heart for us as a church today. So as we turn there to Ruth, between Judges and First Samuel, if you have your Bibles with us, we're going to be looking at chapter 1. And as, as we open God's Word, would you join me in a word of prayer? God, I thank you for the richness of your word. I thank you that that your goodness is new every morning. So God, I pray that you would refresh your word to us today. As we open it together, I pray that you would get me out of the way, but that you would speak to me and to your people today. In Jesus' name, amen. So Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephathrites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, 
she said no more. You may be seated. Well, as you see Adam and Sarah Falkenstein this morning, uh, please welcome them back and forgive them if they seem maybe just a little out of sorts. They just got back late last night from a much-deserved vacation to the Magic Kingdom in Florida. Now, I'll admit, Disney World is not on my own bucket list. Um, I've never been there, and I'm quite content to keep it that way. Um, I think it's something about being an introvert and the size of the crowds that I understand are there, and being a cheapskate. (laughs) Plus, I don't know, Pastor Jeff, you can't camp there, can you? No. You can? Oh, well, maybe there's hope. But I believe in miracles outside of the greatest place on earth. For example, somehow, even though we have a six-year-old daughter, our house is not one unending Disney princess theme park. Even though Joelle does have a Sleeping Beauty doll and a couple of hand-me-down dress-up gowns, um, she hasn't yet gotten into the whole Disney princess franchise. And those of you who know, know that it is definitely a franchise. Um, Now, I think the last Disney princess movie I saw was Beauty and the Beast, the original one. So I'm almost 25 years out of date on this. But I do know that like any group of princesses, there are those who are in and those who are out. Despite the horde of direct-to-video spin-offs, and now they're doing live-action remakes for some reason, Um, But there are only 11 headlining Disney princesses. Moana apparently sometimes gets included and sometimes not, but her movie isn't one of them, so I don't know how that works. And Frozen, despite the fact that it has two princesses in it, and despite it was the only one of the bunch to get a theatrical sequel, and despite, I understand, it was the highest-grossing animated film of all time, it's not officially a Disney princess movie according to Disney. It's kind of like junior high all over again, isn't it? (laughs) But I guess we'll just have to, yes, let it go. (laughs) Well, if any Bible story deserved consideration for princess standing, uh, I think with apologies to Queen Esther, I would probably make my top pick the book of Ruth. Ruth to me, is one of the most beautiful stories in all of the Bible. It's a profound account of faithfulness, friendship, and love. And while Ruth isn't technically a princess, I know that she is a hardworking, resourceful, brave, dedicated, and faithful woman. And those who are more progressive would applaud this, I'm sure. We don't get any clear indication of what Ruth looked like, but we do see that just like Cinderella even when she's sweaty and dressed in rags and working in a field, she can still catch somebody's eye. And if anybody in the Bible were a Prince Charming, well, I think that would be Boaz. It's a man whose name literally means strong. He's a protector who values Ruth's character more than her looks. He trusts God and acknowledges him publicly always seeks to do what is right and accomplishes his goals with skill and tact and strength. But we don't often focus on another person in the story, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi. She might not be a fairy godmother, uh, 
and she's certainly no wicked stepmother. But she is, in many ways, even more compelling than Ruth, whom the book is named for. And I think her journey is no less significant. As we look at Naomi, we see that she experiences great loss and great love. She expresses deep bitterness and generous blessing. And I think we can all learn from her journey. So first, just as we see in the passage we read today, Naomi has experienced great loss. Facing famine and hunger, her husband took the family away from their town, their friends, their culture, and he went to almost the last place any respectable Israelite would go. Moab had opposed Israel on their way from Egypt to the promised land. Moab led Israel astray through idolatry and sexual immorality. Moabites were not to join the assembly of Israel to the 10th generation. Basically, Moab was like Michigan. Now, I'm sorry, I'm contractually obligated to make a Michigan joke at least once a year, so check, done with that. But Moab is where Elimelech takes his family. And, of course, it goes downhill from there. Elimelech dies. And the widowed Naomi sees her sons take foreign wives, scandalous Moabite girls. And then, after a decade of living in Moab, both of her sons also die. The text emphasizes her loss, just in case we missed those implications. The woman was left without her two sons and her husband. She's left alone in a foreign country. And she's left with no means of support. The options were limited for a woman in those days and even more limited for an old foreign widow. So she makes the difficult decision to slink back home to Bethlehem. And yet, on the way, in the midst of her loneliness and her loss, she finds great love. Her son Kilion's widow, Orpah, gives Naomi compassion and affection and then turns and returns to her home. But then there's Ruth. Ruth clings to Naomi and won't let go, and we hear in her that great confession of faith and faithfulness. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, there I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Ruth not only professes her love for Naomi and her commitment to her, she also confesses her faith in Naomi's God. Notice that she swears not in the name of Kamash, the god of Moab, but in the name of the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel. I think that over the past decade, Ruth has seen something in Naomi. In the middle of the pain of losing her husband and then both of her sons, Naomi has still presented a character and a faith that was attractive to this Moabite. Attractive enough that Ruth was willing to leave everything behind to stay with her. Naomi's gracious life revealed the true God to Ruth and led her to put her faith in him as well.
And in turn, Ruth was able to support Naomi as both, men, both women went through this time of loss. One of our core values as a church is loved people don't do life alone. And we see here the significance of that. In the middle of our trials and our sufferings, one of the greatest gifts and comforts God can give us is his church, if we're willing to live that out. That, I think, is part of the power of the grief recovery group that Pastor Rich and others are going to be leading, be leading starting next week. Jesus said, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So we see Naomi as a woman who has experienced great loss and great love. She's also a woman who expresses deep bitterness and generous blessing. As she returns to Bethlehem with Ruth, Naomi draws attention among the townspeople. Ruth 1.19 picks up the story. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, when we're naming our children in America... Um, we tend to place most importance, I think, on the sound of the name or who has had that name before. My wife is named Ginger because her dad liked the sound of French names. I'm named David for my father's best friend. Our son is named Wilson in memory of my dad. It was his middle name. But in ancient Israel, as in China and many other cult cultures today, it was the meaning of a name that was most important. Our Chinese students thought that it was hilarious that ginger was named after a root. Think of meeting somebody named Potato. <laughs> and in fact, we chose our daughter's name not just because we liked the name of the sound Joel, name, the sound of the name Joel, not just because we had known a couple of very nice women by that name, but because it means the Lord is God. And it was the prophet Joel, Joel, whom Peter quoted in Acts chapter 2. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that's our prayer for her. Naomi's name means pleasant. And she thinks that just doesn't suit her anymore. So she tells her old friends and her neighbors to call her Mara, bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Now, I know there are some who would criticize Naomi here. They say she's wrong to be bitter toward God. She needs to have a more positive outlook. She needs to trust more. But I wonder how often we allow ourselves to be this honest with God and with others. Naomi has reason to feel the way that she does. She was uprooted from her home, taken to a foreign land where her husband and sons all died. 
And now, after 10 years away, she's returning, penniless and broken, with an outcast of a daughter-in-law in tow. If you read through the Psalms or Lamentations or most of the prophets, for that matter, you see the honest cries of broken people who are willing to be transparent before God. It's okay to be honest with him. When my wife and I were in college, there were people who referred to others as happy, shiny Christians. These are people who were saccharine sweet to the point that it was nauseating. Because even when we knew there was pain there, they put on the fake smiles and the masks. Many of you know that last weekend, Jerry Freed had his knee blow out. He said it has torn in something like five different places. And he blames it on 90 times jumping out of a plane as a paratrooper. I really appreciate Jerry's friendship, his humor, his honesty, and his good attitude. And I also appreciated how at the men's breakfast yesterday, he was honest with us about how he was struggling with the injury, how it limited his ability to get around and chipped away at his feeling of providing for his family. Of course, his great bitterness was that in the middle of all of that, he missed the window on pumpkin spice spam. Some of you might not know that Jerry is among the foremost collectors of spam cans on the planet. What is it, 280 cans? There's even like six other people like him, believe it or not. Um, (laughs) But he missed getting a can of pumpkin spice spam, and it sold out last week in seven hours, and he missed it. We were debating taking up a love offering so he could buy one, but it turns out Debbie got him one off eBay, so we're all good. That is true love right there, when you will buy your husband a $21 can of Spam. There's just nothing like it. I think it's better to go to God honestly, even if that means going to him in anguish, than to try to pretend that everything is okay. He knows it's not. He knows your heart. So be open with him. Because when we admit our pain before him, we show a level of trust that he can work with. Because even though God wants us to be open and honest about our pain, he doesn't want to leave us there. And what do we see in Naomi? Certainly not a happy, shiny Israelite. No, she says, call me Mara. Call me bitter. Would you dig a little deeper with me? Because what's fascinating about Ruth chapter 1, verse 20, is that in the Hebrew, it's virtually identical to Job chapter 27, verse 2. Put that in a little context, starting with the beginning of the chapter. And Job again took up his discourse and said, As God lives who has taken away my right, and the Almighty who has made my soul bitter. As long as my breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood and my tongue will not utter deceit. In fact, Naomi's name for God here, the Almighty, in Hebrew, Shaddai, it's unusual. Biblical scholars note that everywhere else in the Bible, it's only used in this form in poetry. 
and it's almost entirely used in the most ancient books of the Bible. Well, what does that mean? Well, I think Naomi is being intentionally poetic here. She's connecting herself back to Job and to his suffering. And what is it that Job is proclaiming in that section Naomi is quoting from? He's talking to the friends who keep telling him, Job, your suffering is showing that your relationship with God is broken. Job says, no. As long as God's spirit is with me, I'm going to be honest. Honest with him and honest with you. Job doesn't understand why God has allowed his pain. He doesn't see that it connects to any particular sin of his. And he's not going to put on a mask and pretend that everything's okay or put on an act just to save his own skin. But Job did cling to the hope that God would ultimately come to his defense. There's that great, uh, great poem there in Job chapter 19. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Naomi quoted Job, and I think it was her way of being honest with God and with her old neighbors, her way of pointing to a deeper truth and hope. I don't know why I've suffered like this, but I know that my Redeemer lives. Am I putting words into Naomi's mouth? Well, obviously I don't think so. But I think her honesty with God shows that in truth, she doesn't give up on her relationship with him. And because even though she doesn't know why she is suffering, in the middle of her pain, she's still able to express genuine and generous blessing to those around her. She says to her daughters-in-law, May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. She's praying with hope for their future. She's offering blessing in the midst of her pain. And I think it is more generous blessing because of her pain. But her story doesn't end there, thankfully. One chapter later, Naomi allows Ruth to go out into the fields to glean barley, to gather the leftover grain after the harvesters went through. So that somehow, the women might be able to survive. And Ruth just happens to go into the field of Boaz, a relative of Naomi's late husband. And what happens? Boaz takes notice of Ruth, and he blesses her with protection. He provides for her abundantly and prays God's blessing over her because of the great kindness and faithfulness she has shown to Naomi. Ruth returns that evening having gleaned 30 pounds of barley. Picture that. She's coming into the house, laying the sack on the table before Naomi, and she says that she has been working for Boaz. Naomi bursts out with a blessing and praise. May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Why? Well, Boaz is what was called a kinsman redeemer, a relative who, according to the law, 
could buy back the assets of a destitute family member. He could marry the widow of a relative to preserve the name and the heritage of the dead and provide for the living. I think Naomi is saying, in effect, I see it now. I didn't know why God allowed such bitterness and such calamity, why it seemed that his hand was against me. You know, I still don't know why. But I see now that God's kindness has not forsaken me. He has not forsaken you, Ruth. He has not forsaken the memory of my husband and my sons. I know that my Redeemer lives. Now, Naomi is many things, but she is still a mother-in-law. So she meddles a bit to push Ruth and Boaz together, and she does it successfully. Ruth and Boaz do get married, and Boaz redeems not only his wife, but also Naomi. Ruth and Boaz go on to have a son, Obed. And the the women of Bethlehem say to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. Now, I don't know that Naomi ever really understood why she went through such suffering. In this fallen world, it's a very difficult question to answer for any specific situation that we face, at least while we're going through it. What we do know is that God says he can use our suffering for our ultimate good. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For this reason, Paul challenges us to even rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. As the great preacher Charles Spurgeon said, Jesus is our glorious Boaz. He is the Redeemer all other Redeemers point to. And indeed, we have a suffering Redeemer, a Messiah who took on the ultimate suffering for our sake to restore our relationship to God. In the garden, he begged his father to take the cup of suffering from him. On the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus understands our bitterness and our pain, even if we don't. And at least in Naomi's eye, in Naomi's case, we have the gift of seeing how God was able to weave even her pain into his grand and glorious story for all of mankind. 
because we're told that Obed becomes the father of Jesse, and Jesse becomes the father of David. And at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, we learn that Ruth is counted among the ancestors of Jesus. God used Naomi's loss to show true love. He used Naomi's bitterness to strengthen her blessing. He made her a blessing to the whole world through that child on her lap, the one who would be grandfather to David, ancestor to the Messiah. And so I ask, where are you today? Are you in Moab, feeling the pain of loss? I pray that God will show you love in the midst of it. Are you bitter in your heart today? I pray that you'll find strength to be honest with God, to bless others and to see his hand working for good even in your pain. Are you experiencing God's blessing today? Well, I pray that he would give you a song of praise and a heart for those around you, that others will know his grace in this world and the hope that is to come. Amen. Would you pray with me?